Well, I grew up in a, in, in a family, we like to celebrate Christmas, um, but my mom wasn't like over the top with nativity scenes. So we had one nativity scene, I can still picture it, I played with that nativity scene, it was in our, like, our formal living room where nobody ever did anything but you had one, and it sat there on that coffee table and that was the nativity. Now, my wife is of a totally different breed. We have a lot of nativities all over the place. I think there, I don't know how many nativities we have in our home. There are a couple in the living room. There's some in the kitchen. And there's probably no, there's one in the hallway. So we have a lot of nativities. And that's been the case as long as we've been married. And there's one particular instance where our oldest, Hannah, came into our bedroom where my wife and I were at that point in time with this very, very, very distraught look on her face. And I could tell she was doing her best to hide behind her back and her pudgy little fingers something that she didn't want us to see. And with the most pathetic look on her face, she says, trying not to look at my wife, make eye contact because the tears are already starting to come, she says, Mommy, I'm sorry. And she pulls out from behind her back one of the figurines from the nativity and she says, Mommy, I broke one of your idols. Now that was a moment for some theological education. But with all these nativities that we have around, it's always interesting to see who they include in the nativity, who gets left out, why in the world we're stuck on having the wise men there when we're all pretty much with the fact that they're not supposed to be there. In the midst of all the people that we tend to focus on in the nativity scene, the one person who often is not focused on is Joseph. I mean, we want to know what the wise men are going to look like. The sheep are kind of cool. You want to know what other animals they throw in. Of course, there's baby Jesus, halo, no halo, all that kind of stuff. And Joseph, well, you know, he's just kind of there. Now, we kind of have, I don't say good reason for that, but when you look at Scripture, you might be interested to find out that The Gospel of Mark never mentions Joseph, not one time. The Gospel of John only mentions Joseph two times, and that's indirectly when it calls Jesus the son of Joseph. So that leaves us with Luke and Matthew, and in the birth narrative in Luke, Joseph, of course, is there, but he's always kind of in the background. In fact, it's in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 2 when we get really our last mention of Joseph being alive and involved in the life of Jesus in Luke chapter 2 when Jesus is 12 years old and they've gone to Jerusalem for the Passover. Jesus has stayed behind. They thought he was traveling with someone else. And this sounds like my upbringing. I got left at church quite a few times. Anyway, So they're traveling, and then they realize he's not there, panic, go back, find him. And it tells us that their parents were there, and of course Mary expresses that both her and uh, her husband were distraught that he wasn't there. After that, Joseph disappears. He's gone from the scene. Now, we likely we conclude that probably Joseph dies. Okay, by the time Jesus starts his public ministry, the, the wedding there, Joseph isn't mentioned there. And of course, by the time we come to the end of Jesus' life, 
It would be very odd if Joseph was still alive and Jesus there hanging on the cross commits Mary, his mother, into the care of John if Joseph is still around. Well, what do we know about Joseph? Well, we know he was a descendant of David, right? In fact, Matthew, those first 17 verses that we're skipping because I can't read those names, those verses are there as a genealogy to tell us that Joseph was a descendant of David and therefore as the adoptive father of Jesus that Jesus was a legal descendant of David. So he's a descendant of David. We say that Joseph is a carpenter and we get that again because Jesus is referred to as a son of a carpenter. Matthew 13 verse 55, Jesus is called the son of a carpenter. And in our minds we might think of a carpenter nowadays, somebody working with wood making cabinets or I don't know, whatever else. More than likely, that's not what Joseph did. And the word that's used there is very broad. It gives the idea of a a worker in hard substances. More than likely, more more than wood, he probably worked with stone. We also have this notion in our heads that Mary and Joseph were poor. And that's a possibility. We get that from Luke chapter two. When they went after Jesus' birth to the temple for purification. And we're told that in that process, they offered two turtle doves and two young pigeons. Partridge, gin, and pear tree. No. They offered those things, and in Leviticus chapter 12, verse 8, it tells us that that was the offering in place of a lamb for those who couldn't afford a lamb. So we assume that they were poor, although the job of being a carpenter was not a poor man's job. More than likely, they would have been somewhere around middle class. So we don't really know that they were poor. We certainly don't need to imagine them being in abject poverty of any kind. So really, we know little to nothing about Joseph, who happens to play a pretty important part as the adoptive father of Jesus. And we almost know nothing about him Matthew, in, in, in chapters 1 and 2, we, we get really the only stories where Joseph is kind of center stage, and one of the things that we see about Joseph is that he was a man of obedience. All right, you got your Bibles open? Look, look at that passage that you're at. Look at chapter 1. We're going to just look right now at verses 24 and 25, and this is what it says. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So that's chapter 1. Then chapter 2, if you just look over there, verses 13 and 14. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Arise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And, verse 14, he arose and took the child and his mother by night, and they departed to Egypt. So he did exactly what he was told to do. Later on in that same chapter, verses 19 through 21, but when Herod died, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared in a dream. I I would think if I was Joseph, I'd be slightly afraid of sleeping. He appeared to him in a dream, to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he arose, verse 21, and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. 
So those are the three main instances. Now we know when they got ready to go back to the land of Israel, there was concern and the angel comes and warns them again and he listens to that warning. So here are the three major moments for Joseph. Joseph in all of scripture, these are his shining moments and in each and every moment, what do we see about him? We see that he's obedient. The angel, which is just messenger from the Lord, comes and says, do this, and Joseph does it. He says, do this, and Joseph does it. Now, I know we haven't gotten very far, but I want to ask you this question this morning. Is obedience a mark of your life? We have this unique ability in this day and time with social media to kind of put ourselves out there in whatever way we, we want to, right? We snap pictures and post them of all the meals we cook that come out right, I have yet to see an Instagram picture of peanut butter and jelly sandwich, right? I've yet to see the Instagram picture, hey, I'm out to eat with my friends, and there you are, McDonald's, happy meal, shoving fries in your face, big coke. That's not the way we want people to see us, right? We have this ability to portray ourselves in that cyber universe kind of however we want, we have a lot of clamoring nowadays as to how we identify ourselves. Is it by my ethnicity? Is it by my political persuasion? Is it by my, my economic status? But let's just say for a moment, all that was stripped away, kind of like we've done with Joseph in Scripture. All that stripped away, and we only had the opportunity to zero in on a few specific moments in your life. What would characterize you? Would others be able to zoom in on your life not knowing your ethnicity, not knowing your social class, not knowing how you voted, not knowing what you last posted on Instagram or Facebook or any of those things, and zero in on your life and mark that you are a person of obedience? In John chapter 15, Jesus says this, and they're astounding words, and they continue to amaze me. He says this, and we'll get to this passage soon as we return to our study in John. Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, now just, just try and soak that up. As the Father, God the Father has loved me as his Son for all of eternity, past, present, future, so I loved you. Then he says, here's what I want you to do with that, abide in that love abide in my love and then he says here's how you do it if you keep my commandments you will abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love now those are huge words as the father has loved me with that intensity with that weight with that purity with that depth I have loved you and I want you to abide in that just sit in that marinate in that and here's how you do it Keep my commandments. Keep my commandments and you'll abide in my love as I abide in my Father's love because I keep his commandments. Now earlier he said this, John 14 verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So now we've got it going both ways. If I want to abide in Christ's love, where do I need to be? Obeying his commandments. If I love God, where do I, what am I going to be doing? Obeying his commandments. So here's how I break that down. This is what I would say. Our understanding of God's love for us and the depth of our love for him is reflected in our obedience to his will. 
our understanding of God's love for us and the depth of our love for Him is reflected in our obedience to His will. We can talk, we can sing about how much we love God and about how much God loves us. But one of the true marks of our understanding of that love is in our obedience to God's will. So the call this morning, my call to you, what I think Scripture calls us to this morning in this text that we want to look at, is that we examine our life to see if obedience to God is a noticeable attribute. Examine your life this morning, this Christmas season, to see if obedience is a noticeable attribute. Now here's what I want to do. I want us just to walk back through this passage that Howard read. I want to try and get a a, a fuller picture of it to make sure we understand it. And then we're going to go back and we're going to see some marks of true obedience. Okay? So, Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. This is what it says. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, the word birth there could actually be translated origins, and that might be a better translation just in the sense this isn't just about the birth of Christ, but his beginning here on earth. And it tells us that Mary was betrothed. Now, you've probably heard many, many times that betrothment was way more than engagement, which is a good thing, right? Because in our day and time, the only problem with engagement when you break it off is who gets the ring. Like, how much did it cost? Does she keep it? Does the guy get it back? Can he get his money back? And those types of things. This was a way bigger deal. Betrothment was more like marriage already, and it took basically divorce to break off betrothment. One commentator said that if a man were to die betrothed to a woman, that that woman would be considered a widow. We also don't want to have in mind, though, when we read betrothment, that this meant that Mary and Joseph had been texting back and forth, cute little emojis, smooch, smooch, heart, heart, you know, all that kind of stuff, that they had had a lot of interaction and conversation. They'd been dating for a while. They had checked out all the restaurants there in Nazareth and all that kind of thing. That's, you know, they had done all that stuff. This was something more than likely arranged by their parents. And there's a good chance they didn't know each other well at all. They weren't together, obviously. That didn't happen until the wedding. The wedding would take place, and the wedding only took place. Listen to this, fellas. The wedding only took place when the guy was able to provide for the woman. So you get a job before you get a wife. A real job before you get a wife. And part of the wedding would be that there would be the wedding ceremony and then they would come together, which we see later on in the text, means that after the wedding he would go stay, she would go stay at his house. And that was it. They were married. It was done. Okay, so they're not, they're not together yet, and that's clear. Uh, the verse tells us that. They hadn't come together yet. They're betrothed, but they're not living together. Of course, they haven't had sexual relations together or anything like that. Then it tells us that she was found. The verse tells us she was found to be with child. Now, that's not like, oh, wow, what, what happened here? It's not like she was trying to hide it. What I think is probably talking about here is that if you remember in, in Luke's account... 
after Gabriel shows up and tells Mary what's going to happen, where does she go? She goes to visit Elizabeth. And she stays with Elizabeth for a while, and there's that whole scene. Mary walks in, John the Baptist in Mary's, in, excuse me, uh, Elizabeth's belly, already full of the Holy Spirit. He jumps in there, and there's all this stuff going on. And it's, it's you know, so that happens. And she stays there three months, Luke chapter 1, verse 56 tells us. So by the time she comes back, she's three, four months pregnant, okay? That's a little difficult to hide. It's become obvious that she's pregnant, and Matthew, of course, being a good theologian, he does not want for one moment for anyone to think anything other than what's true, so he adds this little note in there that, she had be, that the child was from the Holy Spirit. Now, Mary knows that. Elizabeth, I think, probably got that. Maybe her husband, Zechariah, knows that, but they're the only three people, as best we know, on the planet Earth who know that. Okay, so verse 19 tells us, and her husband, now that shows you the connection, the intimacy of this betrothal, Matthew's already calling Joseph her husband, and her husband being a just man. Now sometimes we want to throw a lot into that word of just man, and we want to make Joseph up to be just almost larger than life. Just man means just that. He was just, he was righteous. It can be righteous spiritually or legally, but it probably just infers the fact that he was a man who kept the law. He kept the law of God. That's what Joseph did, and that seems to bear out as we read about him, the little we know about him. He was an obedient man. He was just. So here's Joseph. He's a just man. And being a just man, he was unwilling to put her to shame. Okay, unwilling. He didn't want to do this. He didn't want to put her to shame. Now that word shame there is the idea of disgrace. It is often used in connection with adultery. Joseph is in a tough spot here, okay? He's a just man, and the law of God requires, Deuteronomy 22, verses 13 through 24, the law of God requires that he put Mary away. Now, the most extreme of that could result in Mary being stoned to death. Certainly, there will be shame that she will endure. There's no way around that, okay? This is not saying that there's some way Joseph is going to figure out he's going to put Mary away and there will be no shame for her. But he could make a big deal out of it, or he could send her away quietly. Deuteronomy 24 talks about that uh, idea of sending a woman away quietly, and so perhaps that's what Joseph has in mind, but what the text is telling us is that the decision has already been made. Joseph feels like he doesn't have a choice. He's a just man. He doesn't want to put Mary to shame, but what choice does he have? It's clear she's with child. He knows it's not his child. What option does he have? And so verse 20 says, but as he considered these things, and again, don't think about that meaning he's second-guessing himself. That's not what's being communicated. You've been in that situation before, right? You know exactly what you have to do, but you're still thinking through it over and over again, hoping you've missed something and you'll find another way. There is, there wasn't another way. He's already made his decision, and all of this is pointing this direction. Here was this betrothal between two good people, and they're going to get married, and everything's going great, and all that kind of stuff. Now she's with child. Now he's got a divorcer. There's no other option because he's a just man, and he's going to put her away. And then in the midst of all that, you get, behold, behold, look, 
This is going to change everything. Okay? An angel of the Lord, which again simply means messenger, appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David. Now that's son of David, like we already said. That would take us back to that genealogy, verses 1 through 17, and trace Joseph's genealogy back to David. It would remind him of his past, but I think it would also, in Joseph's mind, send him forward to the desperation that a Jewish man would have felt for the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. They were still waiting for the fulfillment of that covenant. They lived under the tyranny of Rome and they desired to see that fulfillment. And yet, oh, and yet, with all of the hopes that a Jewish man could have in the line of David, the line of David had proven to be faulty and weak and insufficient. As great as King David had been, as miraculous as the kingdom in the time of Solomon had been, it had proven to fail over and over and over again, and they desperately needed something better. So the angel says, Joseph, son of David, throwing back, thinking forward as well, do not fear. Do not fear. Now, this fear is not like I'm shaking type of fear. It's a don't shrink back. Don't be apprehensive. To do what? To take Mary as your wife. Marry the girl. You can do it. Don't be afraid. Don't shrink back. There's going to be social pressure, but don't shrink back. Do it. Marry the girl. It's a command. Do it. Marry, Mary. And then he says, because the child in her... Is from who? The who? The Holy Spirit. I know, we're conservative. We don't talk a lot about the Holy Spirit. But it's okay. The Holy Spirit. Now, we go, Holy Spirit, yeah, book of Acts. Yeah, Holy Spirit comes down, tongues of fire, rushing wind, that guy. Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, blah, blah, blah. That Holy Spirit, gifts of the Spirit, screwed up church in Corinth, you know, doing all kinds of weird stuff with the gifts of the Spirit. Yeah, we know, Holy Spirit, got it. Joseph didn't get any of that because none of that's happened yet. Why in the world this is the choice of the declaration, I don't understand totally. Because when you look to the Old Testament and you search for references to the Holy Spirit, you get three. Three references to the Holy Spirit. One is Psalm 51 verse 11. When David is confessing his sin and seeking repentance, he says, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. The other two references are in Isaiah 63, verses 10 and 11. In verse 10, in Israel's rebellion, the prophet talks about them grieving his Holy Spirit. And then in verse 11, it talks about how God has put his Holy Spirit in the midst of his people. Now, obviously, there are other references to the Spirit. You can go all the way back to Genesis in chapter 1, 1 and 2, and you have the Spirit there, and there are evidences of the Spirit, and the Spirit is talked about, but we can't import into this on Joseph's behalf all of the revelation we would receive later on about the Holy Spirit. But this is what God in his wisdom decided to do. He's decided to say that the child within her is there through the Holy Spirit. And so, verse 21, he says, she will bear a son. There you go. Surprise over. No ultrasound needed. 
Break out the blue balloons. There it is. He'll bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. That's a command. The force of it is a command. You don't have a choice. It's Jesus. That's going to be his name. Yeshua, Yahweh saves. For he will save his people from their sins. Now, okay, all right? Now, I want you to think about the birth narratives. Luke chapter 1 this is, this is what the angel Gabriel tells Mary. Okay, this is the woman. Now, this kind of this messes with my head. Speaking of this baby, Jesus, he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom, and of his kingdom, there will be no end. Now, if you're going to say that to a mom, or are you going to say that to the dad? I mean, that is like beat your chest dad stuff right there. But Mary gets that message. What does Joseph get? Call his name Jesus, for he will save his people, his people, Jewish people, from their sins. That's not nearly as exciting. Not nearly as exciting. In fact, we see in the life of Christ that Jewish people almost balk at this idea. We need to be saved from our own sins. We need to be saved from Rome. That's what we need. Perhaps in Joseph's mind, he is making some connection that it was because of the repeated lack of covenant faithfulness that Israel has ended up in the situation that they're in. Either way, to me, this, this, this declaration just kind of falls off. It's not as bold and robust as the declaration made to Mary, sit on the throne of David, rule forever, kingdom with no end. Give me that stuff. That's not what Joseph gets. Verse 22, and all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. This is very clear by Matthew. Matthew wants to make so, so clear, all of this is happening exactly the way God the Father has planned it. None of this is happening by chance. Not one bit of it. God the Father is sovereignly in control of everything, and he's orchestrating every moment exactly the way it's supposed to happen. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. A quote from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. There is no way Joseph understood. I mean, he understood Emmanuel. He didn't need the little parentheses there. That means God with us. He knew that, but he didn't know that. There was no way he understood the reality that that baby that he would hold in his hands, whose diapers he would change, whose mouth he would feed, whose spit up would fall over him, that that baby would be God incarnate. No way he understood that. Then verses 24 and 25, when Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. So there are the two commands Mary, Mary, and call the boy Jesus, and he does it. He does exactly what he was called to do. 
exactly what he's told to do. And essentially, we don't want to divorce this from the Lord. Remember, this angel, the word here is just messenger. The angel's just delivering the exact message that God gave him. So Joseph is not submitting to an angel out of terror who appeared to him in a dream. He's obeying God. He's obeying the commands of God to do what God told him to do. Now, as I look back over this passage, and with the time that we have remaining, I want us to see three things about simple obedience. And the first thing that I think we see as we look back at this story of Joseph is that simple obedience humbly lays down its rights. Simple obedience humbly lays down its rights. Now, in verse 19, we're told that Joseph is a just man. And as a just man, he was living by the law of God. And the law of God, now listen, this is not the, the, the Constitution of the United States of America or the Bill of Rights. This is the law of God given by God to Moses, Mount Sinai, shaking fire, all that stuff. This is that law of God that was given. And Joseph is seeking to live by that law. And yet in order to obey God, he said, lay down that right and obey and do what I say. Now we can hear that, but let me tell you something. Here in this United States of America, we love our rights. We can balk at natives around the world still living in places like Africa and South America, and we think how foolish that they would have idols and they would have witch doctors and they would do all this stuff. You tell me that the Bill of Rights has not become an idol to most Americans and that lawyers do not function as witch doctors who do their voodoo to give us what we want. We can so quickly worship our rights, and even within the church, we can stop our obedience where the Bill of Rights begins. Oh, I'll obey right up to the point where you say, lay down your rights. So we have in America, right, the freedom of speech. I have the right to express myself about what I think, how I feel, what I think you should think, how I think you should feel, why I don't like what you think, why I don't like the way you look. I have the freedom, according to the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, to say whatever I want to say in whatever fashion I want to say it. I can put it on a t-shirt, put it on a bumper sticker, post it on the internet, repost somebody else's article. I can do it, and it's my freedom to do it, and if you trample on that, I will squeal like a pig. And yet, in the book of Ephesians, when Paul talks about putting off of the old and putting on the new, he says this in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for the building up, as is fit for the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Are the comments that I make fit for the occasion? Are the words that proceed out of my mouth to my coworkers and to my family, are the words I've posted on my car or on the internet grace-giving? Are they gifts of grace to the individuals who I hope read them? Does my obedience stop where the Bill of Rights begins or am I willing to lay down my rights in order to obey? As I examine my life 
for obedience, there should be places where I see that I am laying down my rights and obedience to God. And if there aren't, then something's wrong. Second thing, simple obedience is willing to bear the shame of others. Simple obedience is willing to bear the shame of others. Now that verse 19 tells us that he wanted to put, he was unwilling to to put Mary to shame, and he, so he wants to put her away quietly. But there's no way that Mary is going to avoid shame. She is going to be shamed. Her life has changed forever. She is going to be shamed, but Joseph has this opportunity to remain a just man, not just according to himself, but according to his community. All he has to do is put Mary away. And if he puts Mary away says, that's not my child. Well, we know Mary's not going to change her story. Mary's not going to go on some talk show later on and say this is Joseph's baby and all that kind of nonsense. What does Joseph get to do? He has to walk away. Walk away. All the shame and disgrace is on Mary. It's hers The baby's in her belly. It's her son. It's not mine. I didn't play any part in this. And yet the moment that he obeys that command given to him by God, what happens? Mary's disgrace becomes his disgrace. Every time he identifies himself with that woman who was pregnant outside of wedlock, he disgraces himself. And when that baby is born and he names that child, which was a fashion of saying, I adopt this child, it is mine. It's the same idea as when God in the Old Testament says to Israel, I have called you by name, you're mine. When he looks at that little baby and he says his name is Jesus, he is accepting him. Therefore, every time he says, come here, Jesus, Yeshua, The shame of that child born outside of wedlock becomes Joseph's shame. As he walks with that baby boy into the temple for that purification, it's shame that's falling on Joseph's head. Shame that he could have avoided, but only if he wanted to live in disobedience. There are moments when simple obedience calls us to endure shame. You see, it's, it's sometimes easy to obey when we know the result of the obedience is going to be the praise and applaud of other people. Good job. We can jump at those opportunities to obey when we know that people are going to see and they're going to applaud us. This is exactly what Jesus said of the Pharisees in Matthew 23, verse 5. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. Oh, I'll obey God as long as I get credit for it. I want to star on my chart. Make sure everybody sees it. It's got to be a big star. Then I'll obey. But do I jump to the call of obedience when it's not noticed by others? Do I jump to the call of obedience when it results in my shame? Young people, you're there. You're with your friends. Dad comes in. And as we do, we're so good at this. He tells some stupid joke that doesn't make really any sense. He's made kind of a fool of himself. And then, 
Then he has the audacity to tell you to do something. Hey, the dishes need to be done. You didn't finish that. Now all of your friends are looking at you. And you're like, he didn't know what he's talking about. Roll your eyes. Make that snide remark. Ah, oh, I guess I have to obey. Are you willing in that moment to enter into what you perceive to be the shame of your father to obey the call of God? Husbands, you're standing there with some buddies from work, or maybe you're out at the golf course. Phone rings. Your wife's in a little bit of a panic. Something's gone wrong with the car. So she's talking a little loud, and you become apparent. It becomes apparent that everyone else can hear what she's talking loudly about, and the car, and the thing, and the light, and it's dinging, and ah! And you're just kind of, and you can see your buddies, they're all kind of like, women. And they're kind of rolling their eyes and smirking, and you're there, and you know, you're trying to calm her down, and in that moment, Do you enter into what you perceive and what those men perceive to be the shame of your wife to love her and to serve her both while you're on the phone with her and when you hang up? Or does it become some remark that you would never make in her presence but you feel like you need to make to distance yourself and not enter into that shame? What about this? What about when a coworker shows up at your workplace? That person moves into your neighborhood, and because our culture is so screwed up, they identify themselves by their sexual orientation, which you know as a believer is not where identity is found. So they call themselves, because of a same-sex attraction, they call themselves a homosexual. And you begin to reach out to them because you know that the gospel is powerful to deliver them from that bondage of sin. And you want to love them. And as you reach out to them, though, the comments in the workplace begin. Questions about your sexual persuasion begin. And perhaps there are even believers who don't understand what you're doing and they begin accusing you. Are you willing in that moment to enter into their shame and to bear it yourself, to obey the call of God, to go to those who need to hear and to preach the gospel and to live the gospel to them. There ought to be, as we examine our life, places where we see that we're bearing the shame of others in obedience to God. Thirdly, simple obedience starts in the heart and endures to the end. Simple obedience starts in the heart and endures to the end. Now I want you to think about what Joseph has been called to because event obedience, that's kind of the little title I came up with, event obedience is one thing, right? Call me to do a one-time action. That has its own difficulties, right? The moment is there. We're, I'm talking with this person. It's Christmas time. I could talk about Jesus. I feel a little weird. I don't really want to talk about Jesus, but I know I should do it. And so the moment is there, and it's an event. And I either obey what I sense is an opportunity to share the gospel, or I walk away, and it's done. These were not events that God called Joseph to. 
He didn't just say, have the wedding. Okay, I can have a wedding, right? Good, done. He said, marry that woman, which was to say, provide for her and care for her until you die. You will be obeying this command that I'm giving you. He said, name the boy, which is to say, provide for that boy and care for that boy until the day that you die. This was not an event. This was a life sentence of obedience. And as best we can tell, Joseph fulfilled, not perfectly, but fulfilled that call. So in Mark chapter 6, verse 3, when Jesus returns to Nazareth and is being rejected by his own people, they call him the carpenter. Well, how did he become a carpenter? Well, because his daddy was a carpenter. And like any father would, for their son, and Joseph saw Jesus as his son, he taught him his trade. In Matthew, as we mentioned, in Matthew chapter 2, when they're returning from Egypt, as I understand that passage, it was probably Joseph who had the concern about Archelaus who was reigning in his father's place and didn't want to go back, I think, to Bethlehem because he was concerned. Why? Were they searching for fathers to kill them? Who did Herod Herod want to kill? The boys. There's no problem to Joseph. His life wasn't on the line. Well, of course, unless he loved Jesus. Then it was a problem. So he didn't go there. Joseph was faithful to the end. It wasn't perfect, but he was faithful. And I, I, I think this instance in Luke chapter 2, I, I don't want to put too much into this, but, but I, I don't think that this is, this is accidental. Okay, That instance, Joseph has faithfully taken his family to Jerusalem for the Passover every year. Luke tells us that. So Jesus is 12 years old. He gets left there. They're, they go back to the temple to find him. And they're freaked out. And Mary says that. She says they had great distress. Verse 48. And then here's Jesus' response in verse 49. Luke 2, 49. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did, not, did you not know that I must be in my, what? Father's house. Now, what that. Father there, that's capital F, Father, temple. Joseph didn't build that. It wasn't his house. It was God's house. What is Jesus understanding? Jesus is understanding that this guy, Joseph, who I've called daddy since the time that I was a baby, and as soon as I could speak, I've identified him as my father. This man is my adoptive earthly father, but I have a true father who is in heaven. And it's at that moment, as this 12-year-old boy begins to understand who he is, that what happens to Joseph? He falls off the scene. Why? He'd done his job. He'd done his job. And he fades into the background and we hear nothing about him anymore. This type of obedience is more than a commitment of the will, okay? For event obedience, I can kind of scrunch up my face and, I'm going to do this. I'm going to witness to this person. Sit down, listen. Witness to you. I can do that. But obedience that endures throughout my entire life, 
Obedience in the way that, that God called Joseph to obedience, that de- demands something that's more than a force of the will. It's more than just a, I'm going to beat myself into shape and I'm going to do this. No, this obedience requires the heart engagement. It requires what we see in Psalm 119 verse 10, with my whole heart I seek you, let me not wander from your commandments. My whole heart I seek you. And then later on, the psalmist says this, I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. If you strip emotions out of that word delight, guess what you get? I don't know, but it's not delight. This requires emotion. Obedience to God is not just some force of the will where I whip my spiritual person into shape and I've command it and I beat it and I say do what you're supposed to do there is to be a work of God in my life to the place where my heart delights at the statutes and commandments of God God says do it I don't balk and go oh geez okay don't ask me to do anything else but I say yes Lord yes Lord yes Lord Thank you for the opportunity to serve you. Thank you for the opportunity to obey because my heart delights in your precepts and in your commandments. I don't want to forget any of them, any of them, any of them, ever. They're a joy to me. As I examine my life for obedience, there should be a noticeable growth in affections for the commandments of God. Now, this obedience had supernatural results, and we know that, right? We know that because we have the rest of the New Testament. We know who this Jesus grew up to be, and we know what happened in his life. And so we're like, come on, Joseph, you got to do this, man. I mean, a lot's riding on this. You got to, come on. But as you trace the stories of Scripture all the way through, you know what you find? That God delights to use simple obedience to accomplish supernatural things. There is no way, as we said earlier, that Joseph understood what was happening. He did not understand the quote from Isaiah. I'm not even sure he got that part. I think Matthew maybe added that later. But if if the angel said it, he didn't get it. God with us, he didn't understand that. But God used simple obedience from this man to bring forth the Son of God into the world. And he delights time and time again to take the most simple obedience and use it as a means to accomplish the most supernatural results. And God wants to do the same thing in your life and in my life. But what we clamor for, I want to do something radical. I'm going to be radical, do radical things, be a radical person, radicality, whatever. I'm radical stuff. I want the radical. And we miss the simplicity of obedience and leaving the radical to God. Let God accomplish the radical. You walk in simple obedience. I guarantee you, He will show up. He will show up. Now, it is only fitting that in this type of simple obedience, God brings forth his son. It is only fitting. Do you know why? If you beat me there, you know what's turning in my head? This is what was written later about Christ. Have this mind 
among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. What did Jesus do? He had every right to spend all of eternity in heaven in total perfect communion. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit with the angels saying, Holy, Holy, Holy. And He laid down that right. He laid it down. No one forced His hand. He laid it down. Verse 7 of Philippians 2, but emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant and being found in the likeness of man. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. What was a cross? It was humiliation. It was shame. It was utter shame to hang up there naked in front of everybody. It was absolute humiliation. It was a curse. And he was cursed because he was bearing your shame and my shame. He's that father that Jesus describes in the parable of the two sons that when that, father, when that son who ran off begins to come back, the father doesn't sit and wait. No, he runs to his son to embrace him so that people see the shame falling on the father and not the son. He bore your shame he wrapped himself in my shame. He who deserved no shame but the praises of angels, he who holds creation together, took on my shame. He hung on that cross, bearing all of my shame. And he did it all the way to the end. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So all of those times when I fail, I don't do it, folks. I don't do it. I stand up here and I preach and I'm loud and I talk and, and, and all that and I wear this cute little mic and I, it doesn't mean that I'm perfect. I sin, I fail, I'm tempted and I fail over and over again. I fail. But Jesus was there in that wilderness and every time Satan came, he did not fail. And every moment in his life, he did not fail. He did not fail because I do in that moment when all of it's coming together and he's there in that garden and he is weeping and he's feeling the weight of the very reason that he was born in that manger, it's coming crushing down on him. He says, let this cup pass from me. But that's not it. He says, but not my will. Your will be done. He was obedient to the very end. He didn't stop halfway. And Scripture tells us he didn't do it begrudgingly. It wasn't some sheer force of the will. It was because of the joy set before him that Christ endured the cross. He delighted to obey the Father. He delighted to walk in obedience. And so he was crushed on that cross, bearing your shame and mine. Therefore, verse 9 tells us, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Believer, those of you who have put your faith in Christ this morning, is there simple obedience in your life? 
Would this Christmas you ask God for this gift of grace that you take that next step in simple obedience? I don't know what it is. You probably already do. I trust the Spirit of God is working in your heart and you already know. Would you lay down your rights? Would you bear someone else's shame? Would you plead with God that your heart would delight in His precepts and His commands and would you obey faithfully all the way to the end, never giving up? until you see your Savior? If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, know this. It was through the obedience of this child, faithful all the way to the end, that you can have life. The simple obedience of Christ that accomplished the most supernatural thing ever is available to you. It is a free gift to be received by faith. The shame that you bear for your sins, you need not bear any longer. Jesus bore it for you. He laid down his rights. He took on your shame and he did not quit because we do and we so often fail. So that in running to him and trusting in him and him alone, we could have our sins forgiven. And we could begin to walk in faithful obedience to him by the empowerment of his spirit. Romans 5 verse 19 says this, For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, praise God, the many were made righteous. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you more than words can express for the faithful obedience of Jesus Christ. We thank you for his example We thank you for his life. We thank you that he was willing to lay down his rights to take on our shame and delighted to be obedient all the way to the end, even to death on a cross, that we might, we might, who put our faith in him, have life through him. Help us. Would you give us, God, please, don't listen to us in our foolish moments. In our foolish moments, we ask for dumb stuff. But right now we ask, Lord, we ask that you would give us the grace, the gift of simple obedience, that we would know the joy of walking with you faithfully, of living according to your precepts and commandments, that we would see supernatural things happen to your glory and honor. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.